Heavenly Father, we just pray for a sense of your closeness. It's easy to wake up and to go through the motions and to have a sense in our hearts that we're far from you, Father. But just to get about our day and to walk and not to spend time and to sit and to ask, why do we feel far? What can we do to bring you close? And so, Father, we're grateful that for whatever reason, you've brought us all in this room right now to hear your word read and sung and prayed. And so right now, fathers, we're preparing to hear your word preached. I pray that you would remind us, God, that we get a sense of your presence through your word. We're brought close through the things that you've said to us, Father. And this right now is no different. So, so Lord, we pray that you would be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not a fighter. I never grew up as one. But I have been sucker punched. Have you ever been punched like that before? It doesn't feel good at all. When I was in middle school, uh, me and my brother used to love to play ball. So before a school bus would come, we would be out in the front and we'd play one-on-one. Now, he was bigger, stronger, faster, so I never won, except for this one day. And I didn't just win. I murdered him. I killed him. I still remember the score in my head, 10 to 2. I was victorious, he was defeated, and I got up on the bus, and as I walked on the bus, I proceeded to let everybody know that I won. 10 to 2, I said. 10 to 2, 10 to 2, 10 to 2. I won, he lost, and I wanted the whole world to know because I felt victorious. And now as I walked up on my bus in the sixth grade, there were people that I knew to be on my guard against. There were folks that I feared. Brandon Freeman, who once broke a kid's nose because he stepped on his Jordans. Brandon Lateague, a guy who was in our same grade, but he had to have been at least 10 years older than the rest of us. Just very, very big and strong. So I was on my guard against them. But then I sit on the bus, and as I shout, 10 to 2, 10 to 2, My brother walks by me and acts like he's just going to go by. And as soon as he's out of my eyesight, he punches me in my head. My head bangs against the window. And as I try to hold back tears from my eyes, all I could think was, I was victorious. (laughs) I was a winner. Why do I feel like such a loser right now? And a lesson that was etched in my head that day was that just because someone is defeated, it doesn't mean they're inactive. Just because someone is defeated, it doesn't mean that they don't stop working, that they don't stop doing things. And as I've gone on through the course of the years, I've seen this is probably what took place with me back then. It's probably the best description of what takes place In the Christian life, you and I are victorious. We've won. Christ has done all of these things on our behalf. And there are times in our life where we walk in that and we feel like things are good. We feel like that we can boast in the Lord and tell about all the good things that God has done for us. 
And then out of nowhere, it just seems like somebody does something that we didn't expect that takes all the wind out of our sails. Often it's somebody that we know and or love. Knock us down. And so our response to that is, I got knocked down by them. I'm never going to get knocked down by somebody else again. And we guard ourselves and we keep our guards up against the people that we think we need to guard ourselves from. But at the end of the day, it, we're not really protected from harm. Because somebody else comes and does the same thing. And somebody else will come and hurt us in the same way. And so even though we're emotionally guarded, it's not like we're protected from harm. We can tend to find ourselves in rooms like these. We we can tend to find ourselves in relationships and friendships and marriages where we're guarded and we think that because we have our guards up that we should feel safe, but we don't feel safe. At the end of the day, we just feel lonely. Lonely not in the sense that I'm by myself and there's nobody around. Lonely in the sense of in spite of everybody that's around, I don't really feel like I have anybody that can walk through the toughest things of life with me. All our guarding does is it keeps the very folks out that God had intended to help us. And that is the first step towards falling away or punting this thing called Christianity. You don't have to wonder how the story ends if you feel isolated. I've seen it take place time and time again. That as soon as folks find themselves in a place where they're by themselves, guarded, that they can't trust folks, lean on folks, it's just a matter of time before the weight of life takes them to their knees and they find it impossible to get up, and they say, why bother? In the midst of being victorious in this life, it's easy for us to feel knocked down and defeated. And so I want you to know that if that's you in here and you feel frustrated, tired, burnt out, lonely, exhausted, there's good news And the good news is that the God that we serve never intended you to feel that way. And so we go to the one place that we know that we can go to for hope, and that's the book of Ephesians and God's word. So if you would turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and as we close out today, what I want to do is I just want to give us just a broad picture of what this book has been about. And the best way that I can do that is to give you these three words. And the three words are are this, sit, walk, and stand. Sit, walk, and stand. The first three chapters of the book point us to the fact that you and I, those of us that spend our lives trying to work for and earn God's acceptance and approval, and those of us that try to work so hard that get up out of bed in the morning and think of all the things that we have to do in order for God to be pleased with us, this book starts off and it says, all of that's been done for you. Sit, rest, relax. Look here at Ephesians 2, 
starting at verse 4, right? It talks about our sin and the way that we've fell. And it says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The good news for you and I that work so hard to try to please God is that God is absolutely pleased without you doing anything. So we can sit and relax. That's the good news of the gospel. It's an announcement. It's a story that tells everybody that's working, sit down and hear this good news of what God has done for you. And rejoice and relax that Jesus paid the price for our sin. This book starts off and it says, sit. But then it goes on because all those that have really heard how good the gospel is cannot stay seated. It's been said that the gospel came to us on its way to somebody else. The mark of somebody that's really grasped the good things of what God has done is that while they're in their seat and they hear all of these great truths that I don't have to work for God's uh, uh, approval, their mind is flooded with people that they know that are tired and exhausted and broke down and they're saying, are you done? Are you done? I've got to stand up and tell somebody else about this great news. All those that have truly heard or rejoiced in what God has done can't wait to stand up and walk in light of that truth and proclaim, we are victorious, we've won, there's a way to win and you don't have to do anything. So what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2 is this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's saying stand up and walk. Live a life that matches up with the things that you say so that when you proclaim this freedom that is found in Christ, people actually believe you. And they see your life and they want what you have. So Paul tells us to sit, relax. Christ has done it all for us. Stand up and walk. Live in such a way where you can tell other people to sit down and reflect in the great work that God has done. And then we come to the end of the book, and he says, stand. And he says, stand, because you can be victorious. You can proclaim that victory, and you can even do your best to try to keep your guard up against the people that you think are going to hurt you. But just because an enemy is defeated, it doesn't mean that he's inactive. It doesn't mean that there's not somebody that's actively trying to sucker punch you. So at the end of this letter, Paul starts off with these words in verse 10 of chapter 6. And he says this, finally. After he said all of what he said, like a good preacher trying to wake folks up, he says, as I come to a close, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power for people that feel weak, for people that feel like failures, for people that feel like you can't 
do right, like you can't get right or act right or stand upright. What he says is be strong in God's power, not your own. If you're weak and you feel a sense of weakness, if you think about last night and you've come into church this morning full of regret and frustration out of something that was done, out of weakness that has been made clear to you, what Paul says is he's not just saying man up, be strong. He's saying acknowledge that we serve a God that's in strong, that is strong when we embrace our weakness we embrace God's strength. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He wants us to remember that we serve a God that has done time and time again the impossible so that anyone that looks at their life and feels like, man, this Christian walk is impossible. Me changing is impossible. My spouse changing is impossible. That as we sit here and look, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his power because he does the impossible. And so if we run up against something that is an impossibility, we need to know that's the type of canvas that God likes to paint on. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so as we think of this battle there's a few things that we have to know, and Paul prepares us that as Christians in this world, we're not on a cruise ship. We don't just coast through life. His main point in all of this is going to be that we're in a war zone, and so we need to think like that. We need to have our guards up, but the very first step when you get into a fight is not just to know that there's somebody that you have to guard against, but you have to be sure that you have your guards up against the right person. And the very first thing he tells us is to know your true enemy. Know your true enemy. Verse 11 says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. The very first thing that he points us to is he reminds us that we're in a fight, but he wants to make sure that we put our guards up against the right person. It's like if a boxer steps into a ring and puts his guards up against the referee and boasts in the fact that the referee didn't land a punch, you look at him and say, you dummy. That's not the person that you're fighting. There's somebody much stronger than him. And while you have your guards up, you're going to get knocked out. And so what Paul says is, wait, wait, listen, listen. As, as he spent all this time and talked about the walk of the Christian and how it takes place in the context of relationships with people, marriages, kids, people that are at your church, all of this stuff, Paul's saying, wait, wait, wait. I know that I've told you to be mindful of all of that, but 
as you put your guard up, your fight is not against them. Your fight is against the devil. It's a spiritual battle. As we sit in church and talk and kind of each week, week in and week out, we take a time to sit and to confess our sins because we know that our sin in our heart is a major problem. But as the Bible tells it, our sin is not our only problem. We have somebody that is actively at work trying to ruin God's people. And so Paul says this, the first step is you have to know who you're going up against. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. First thing, Satan is a schemer. He is not apparent or blunt in his plot lines. There was one guy that said, Satan exposes the bait and hides the hook. What he does with sin is he presents sin in front of us so that we think it's all pleasure and no consequences. So in the dark, he leaves just enough light for us to see things that are good or that may be good or enjoyable, but he keeps the lights just dark enough where we don't see the consequences. He's a schemer. He's smart, intelligent, sophisticated in his plans. The other thing about him that's so tough for us to get past is that he is patient. He's very patient. Satan is okay with you quietly delving, indulging into porn for 20 years, waiting for you to get a family and kids and to be in charge of something so that when he finally brings what's going on to light and the sin has gotten worse and worse and worse, there's much more damage than would have taken place if you were caught as a 15-year-old. Satan has lived for thousands of years, which means this to him, 70 years is nothing. He's fine with waiting and Paul's saying you're up against a schemer who's smart, who makes things look good and enjoyable. He's a schemer, which means no mistake that's made is an isolated instance. It's all part of a plan. So for those of us that would say, man, I just slipped up. I've got to do better. That's step three in what he's been trying to work out. Paul wants us to know what we're up against so that we can be reminded of the fact. We're outmatched. To go toe for toe, tit for tat, we are outmatched. Right, Paul's going to say in here, Yo, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger, 
Why? Because it'll give Satan a foothold. And every murder starts off with unchecked hatred that lies in someone's heart. And so he knows better than anyone else. It's the smallest things. Now, it's not just that Satan is a schemer and that he does his best to try to hide his plans. But look here at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual battle, which means this. You can't see it coming. Not only is there somebody that knows more, is more patient, is sly, is tricky, who works behind the scenes, but the realm that we fight in is a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. So for all of us that are here in this room that are a part of this church that can look at somebody that's in this room and think my main problem is them, it's not. Not only is he a schemer, not only is it a spiritual battle, one that we, we can't see, but it goes on and says this, on his team, there's rulers and authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan has a squad, a group of folks that are unified in one purpose, and it's trying to undo all of the great things that God has done trying to make sure that those that truly are victorious in what God has done, that they walk around and they feel defeated, so dejected that as they say the words that Jesus has died for our sins and brought us close to God, that they can say those words and it doesn't mean anything to them and it doesn't communicate a thing to the outside world. Although Satan is not omnipresent like God is, he has a team of folks that are unified in their plan, resources that are used to shine the light on all of the imperfections of God's people. Satan is a, a schemer. So we can't really tell what he's trying to do. The battle is spirit ritual. We don't see it coming. He has a squad. A bunch of folks that are unified in trying to do this thing. And the very last thing is, it's a steady stream. Look here at verse 13. It says, it's therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes. In Ephesians 5, 16, Paul's going to say, well, the days, all of them are evil. It's here. And more than that, right, there's times in our life where we kind of feel this unique sense. This is such a hard time in life. Things are so hard. It's easy for us to look at those days and say, man, those days are evil. But if you think for somebody that's a schemer, the one thing that they want to do is to make life kind of seem okay. So if you're in a place where things aren't hard, things seem good, 
that's the, that's the best and most fertile soil for Satan to come in and pull the wool out from under, 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 under our feet. The best way I know how to describe it is this. If Satan had a job, he would be a reality television show producer. Um, about three years ago, uh, my wife and I were on a reality show very, very briefly. I was. My wife didn't sign the waiver. So we get up, and I'm getting ready to do a wedding for some folks that are in our church. And I get a call from Chandra, and she says, hey, there's a crew here. They were just going to film this show at the same place that they were going to have this wedding. And so what took place was they said they'll pay to film their wedding if they'll let them shoot there. So we did, and we um, went through. You know, I put on my best suit. I tried to make sure that my hair was um, all nice for when I would uh, get my 15 minutes of fame and what took place was um, the wedding was done. We were sitting there at the, uh, at the, we, we were sitting at the reception um, and one of the producers comes to our table. He talks to a girl that's there and says, hey, in about 10 minutes, I want you to call over the waiter and be irate at him and get mad at him and say, I've been waiting 15 minutes for the champagne that you said that you were going to get me. So he told her, lie. And when you do this, what's going to take place is we're going to bring around all the cameras. And so in exchange for you lying, you'll get a chance to be on TV. And so what takes place is this producer didn't make her do a thing. But what he did was he tapped into the flaws of human nature, our desire for praise and acclaim and glory. And he knew if he promised her something, that he could get her to take the bait and do that. And she did. And there was this big scene, drama ensued, all of that took place. And the camp, remember, shine their light on what went on right there with them. The producer was a schemer. He knew that he could get people to take the bait or catch the hook if he would just give them bait. The producer also had the resources to make sure that when the worst about human nature came out, it was broadcast and put on display for all of the world to see. This is what Satan does. This is how we exist. This, this is how we live. Satan doesn't make us do a thing, but he so comprehends the flaws that are in our nature that he promises us things in order to get us to do wrong. And he has the resources to ensure that when that takes place, that wrong is put on display so as to undo God's work. If you think that God is the only one that's trying to put the church on display, you are mistaken. Satan knows that uh, nothing gets more publicity 
than Christians falling or fighting with one another. Right? So it's to the point where a gunman can walk into a church, kill nine people, and the church can stand in front of this guy and say, we forgive you. And it's on the front page for a day. But Josh Duggar or insert whatever pastor has fallen. And it's on the front page for weeks. And Satan just sits quietly behind the scenes. There's one pastor that says, men that annoy us are nothing more than darts thrown by Satan himself. And he sits behind the the scenes, not outside of the church, but here at 1450 RDA in this church. He sits here in this church and works discord among folks that are here. So much so that we walk in and sit and are actively beefing with folks that are sitting right here. Hating them. Can't stand the sight of them. Hard for us to forgive them. And then we throw around this word family. It's God that made us family. And we go out and try to proclaim that God has made us family. We're mad at our spouse. Our spouse is mad at us. Folks on the outside are unimpressed about what goes on here. And we wonder, and we wonder why the world that we live in can look at the church and be so unimpressed. Because at the end of the day, we have an enemy that's powerful, that's scheming, that has a squad, that's patient, and is throwing all of these attacks at us. And we think the person that's sitting to our right or our left is the one that we have beef with. And so in this fight that we're in, what Paul does is he reminds us of this fact that we are in a battle where we're outmatched. And you look through history and what goes on is that through the history of the world, Satan has come in and crumbled the best of us. Adam and Eve, who stood in God's very presence, heard God's word from his mouth, they failed. Abraham, who talked with God face to face, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, David. All of these guys failed, were brought to their knees. And as Paul tells us, know who you're up against. You're outmatched. The very next thing that he tells us to do is this. Look here at the start of verse 14. Stand firm. It's one thing to be in a fight and not see a punch coming. It's another thing entirely to be placed in the ring with Mike Tyson, and they say, he's going to hit you. Stand firm. Stand firm? How? I can't. And we felt that, right? We know what to do, what it is that God has called us to do, but sometimes, oh, oh, sometimes obedience seems so hard. 
And the reason why it seems so hard is because it's, in fact, impossible. We can't do it. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Though everybody else failed, though nobody could stand up to this enemy of our souls, there was one person that did, and that person was Jesus. So you go back to the book of Isaiah, right? And so um, it's going to be here on the screen, but Isaiah 59 gives a prophecy of a Savior, somebody that's that's, going to come and help us. Verses 12 and 13 start off, and it just talks about how much we've turned our backs on God, how far we've gone from him, how we can't do the things that he's called us to do. And at the end of verse 15, it says this, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. God looks down and sees there's nobody that can stand up to this foe. It is impossible. So what he did, God had determined that he was going to be the one to come and to defeat him. And look at what, 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 what it goes on to. It says this. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Look at how Paul tells us to stand firm at the end of verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You you see that? The same helmet of salvation and breastplate of righteousness that Jesus himself used to defeat Satan. This is what God tells us to take up. It draws us back to we are up against a foe that we cannot get the better of. Even in times that we feel victorious, even in times that we feel like I'm finally starting to get the hang of things, what takes place is we get tripped up and still fall. Paul's not trying to tell us all this stuff about Satan so that we would be scared or so that we would back down. He's trying to tell us all this stuff about him so that at the end of the day, we know we're outmatched. And it's not just going to be about me trying to do better. Your resolve gets you nothing. It earns you nothing. Everybody with great resolve has crumbled and has fallen. There's nobody that can stand firm just on the strength of their own resolve, and you know that to be true. I don't have to convince you. He tells us all of this so that we would cry out for a Savior, somebody to save us. 
And Jesus is that man through God's word. We see him standing up to Satan toe to toe with less material that Adam and Eve had. Adam and Eve had a garden full of stuff. And Satan got them to eat of this one fruit. Jesus was in a desert, no options, and Satan couldn't get him to fall. Jesus spends his life here on earth destroying apparent demonic powers. And then he goes to a cross and he dies. And you and I would think in a war, when you die, you lose. Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead, and he still won. To show us that you know, there's nobody that can beat him. And now what he says is, the same armor that I used that upheld me, now I give to the church to put on. Right? I'm not a great swimmer. I can't swim. I'm scared of lakes. Um, Ten years ago, when I worked at this sports camp, uh, we would go out and we would go out on the, the, the lake. I never stepped foot off of that shore because I'm like, I'm not going to get off of this shore because if I get off this shore and I face that lake, I'm done for. So what they told me was, no, 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 there's a life jacket. This will keep you up. Put this on and it'll keep you up. And I said, I don't believe it. It's not going to work. I'm too heavy. It's too small. There's no way that this can work. And so what they did was they took a guy that was twice my size. They put the life jacket on him. They threw him in the lake. <laughs> and he had his arms out here. He didn't move his feet. He didn't work at all. And the life jacket held him up. He was safe and secure. Not because he was a great swimmer. Not because he had any resolve to stay alive. He stood firm and he floated because he had on the right uh, uh, equipment. And so from that point on, I put on a life jacket and I jumped in the lake and I had a great time. So what Paul's saying is this, the same armor that worked when Jesus conquered Satan, he's saying, you, Christian, take this up, put this on. This is the only way that you can stand firm. This is it. This is the only hope that you have, but it works. It really, really works. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to get to a close. This is not my close, but if, if you're not with me as I close, just so that you come in. Um, and it says this, look, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Back in this day of time, what, what, uh, what took place were... Clothes weren't really form-fitting. So when you were getting ready to go out to war in preparation for war, what you did was you put this belt on so that it would tighten your clothes, make them form-fitting so that you could move right into the battle. And so Paul starts off and says, yo, put on the, the, the belt of truth. We're up against a schemer, somebody that lies. So constantly guard your, your, yourselves or get ready with truth. Be reminded of the fact that sin does in fact have 
consequences. It does. Shed light on these things. Prepare yourself by war by acknowledging the truth of, uh, about the sin that we see. And then he goes on and talks about this, the breastplate of righteousness. What can take place for all of those that say, I'm saved by grace through faith, it's not my work, it's God's work, is that we can think that we're saved because of what God has done, and that means I don't have to do a thing. And so Paul talks about this, this breastplate being righteousness be, because if you go into a war and admire righteousness or admire a breastplate and don't put it on, it does you no good. Righteousness is meant to be put on. It's meant to be worn. It's meant to be displayed. So much so that the Bible will say in 1 John, the people that claim to be righteous but don't actually put it on and walk in that, they are not righteous. God has done an amazing work for us. He's provided us with right standing with God. And the mark of all of those that really get it is they put it on and they walk as if that's true of them. 15, it says this, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, that these shoes that are put on, they, they don't really guard us, but they prepare us as we're in war to go with a message of peace, a message to all of those that are on the wrong side of this war. The gospel that we preach is not a gospel of condemnation. It's not a gospel of you're going to go to hell and that's that. It's a gospel of everybody that's on the wrong side of this thing. There's peace to everybody that surrenders. If you surrender and stop trying to work for it, if you stop trying to show God that you're good enough, and you hear about this great God that has done all this stuff for us, it's this good news. If you hear that, then there's peace with you and God, free of charge, nothing that you can do or should do or have to do to earn that. And all of those that are fighting this war know we fight against an enemy, but the people that we see are not our enemies. And you see this in the life of Christ. He went to the cross to destroy his one enemy. And it was not the people that actually drove the nails in his wrists. He, he, he didn't look at them as foes and opponents. He looked at them as slaves that needed to be set free. So that on the cross, he looks at these folks that are actually driving the nails through his hands and he's praying, Father, forgive them. Save them. Let them know that there is peace. How can we not forgive? 
reason why Jesus was so extreme in his example of forgiveness was so that you could never say to your spouse, I don't forgive you. An apology has never been a prerequisite to forgiveness. Never. So even if somebody, God forbid, grabs you by your hands and nails you to a cross and sets you up to die, the gospel says they are not our enemy. They're, they're slaves to sin. And more than condemnation, what they need to hear is this gospel of peace. Father, forgive them. And then he goes on and talks about the shield of faith. The thing that you'll see about the shield of faith is it says this. It's capable of a, a, a extinguishing not just some, all of the flaming arrows of the devil. This is a, a picture, not just of a small shield, but a big shield, like the joints that they used in 300 when they all kind of sat back and they all had their shields up. Every arrow stopped. And it says that this is our faith. This is the faith that God has given us. Let me help you grasp what faith is. Faith is not mentally believing something that God said. Faith never takes place just in the realm of our thoughts. Faith always takes place in the realm of action. Faith is I'm living and acting as if the things that God says was true. God says there's a bridge there. I don't see that there's a bridge there. Faith is I'm walking in that direction and I trust that when I get there and take that first step, there will be this bridge. Faith is I live as if the things that God says are true, which means that when Satan hurls things at us, thoughts that condemn us, that when we sit and think, I can't believe I did that again. There's no way that I can be a Christian. I want to be done with all of this. That what we would say is that, no, no, no. Listen, our faith is that Jesus Christ actually died for all of our sins. Every one of them. Even the ones that we willfully do when we know we should do better, and that's not something to excuse us of our sins. It's something to remind us of his greatness and to change the way that we walk from this point forward. All the attacks of the devil can be blocked by this faith, reminding ourselves what God has done. Verse 17, it talks about the helmet of salvation, and, and, and then it goes on to the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And here's where our faith rests, in God's word. The only offensive weapon that's here is God's word. There is no faith without God's word. 
God gives us his word so that we can deal with the attacks of the devil. And a sword, right, contrary to popular belief, it actually does you no good if you don't know how to use it. So if you have a sword and you don't know how, how, uh, uh, how to fight with one, and someone else has a sword and they know how to fight with one, you're going to lose. And so here's what I uh, want to say to this right here. It's not just enough that we have this in our hands and that we know this, but we have to know it well. In every attack in the Bible that Satan comes in, what we see him is he's actively speaking and twisting God's words. Right? So many of us in here are lazy when it comes to the way that we view God's word or treat God's word, and we say things like, if I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say this, I would be a very, very rich man. Well, I ain't a scholar. I'm not a preacher. Well, I mean, I know my word, but I ain't really, you know, I didn't go to school. I can't really read well. I don't really like to read. Do you know in the history of the church, most Christians that have lived have not had their own Bible? Do you know that? The printing press came about 500 years ago. And until that time, people just didn't have their own. But they still had the same responsibility to engage in God's word. And so do you know what that meant? They got with people. And they sit and they read with them and they talked through things. They memorized it so that they always had it with them. Frederick Douglass wrote about the black church in slave times. And one thing that, that, that uh, he writes is this. One of the things that he felt was one of God's unique blessings at this time was the fact that most slaves couldn't read. And you say, how's that a blessing? Well, he's like, sometimes when folks can read and think in propositions and write, they think that it's enough to write down God's truth and hand down God's truth to folks so that they can read and, and they're like, I've done my job and I've written. So all the good things about the gospel becomes principles and abstractions and all of this stuff. But he said, because slaves couldn't read, what took place was they were forced to pass down the gospel in the context of real life and relationships. So if you're in here and you can't read, we want to do all that we can as a church to help you towards that end, but we want you to know that even if you can't read, it doesn't mean that you can't engage with God's word. One of the great ways that we do that is Wednesday nights, and I know Trip talked through that, but our aim as we gather is we really want y'all to be able to engage with God's word, to know that this is the one way that we withstand Satan's attacks. 
Paul gives us all of these things, tells us to take up and put on so that we would be reminded that it's an active approach. There's a lot of things that you can do by accident. You can sit down by accident. You can fall down into a seat. You can fall down and lay down. Do you know one thing that you can't do just by chance? Stand. It's an active decision, it's work, it's hard, but you do it. And so as Paul tells us to stand firm, he gives us very active things that you and I are to do and to participate in. However, we don't do it in our strength, but in God's strength. And so he'll end off like this in verse 10. He starts off and tells us to know our enemy. And then he moves on and tells us, stand or ground. Be mindful of the things that God has called us to do. And the very last thing that he tells us is, even after you do all of that, pray like your life depends on it. 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. If you take all of the times that he said all and always and replace that with some, then you would get the way that we tend to pray as people. Sometimes, for some people, the ones that I really like and think about, on some occasions with some types of requests, on days that I really feel like things are hard. But Paul says, no, 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 at the end of the day, you're up against somebody that even when the waters are calm, you are not safe. So pray. All the time. For everybody. Not just those that you like. It's very hard to stay mad at the folks that you pray for. And so you pray that God would help them. He says, pray, pray, pray. It's hard to pray for all people if you don't know anybody. So you think of the church that we're in now, and as Tripp said, how easy it is to come in week in and week out and then just leave. But if we really have an enemy that's on the prowl and on the attack, then you and I have to be mindful. We have a responsibility to the people that we say are part of our family. And so what that means is that as, as we know about what goes on in the lives of folks, we pray that God would give them strength. So Debbie Allen, uh, Tori, both of them in the course of the, these past few weeks have had surgery on their ACL. And so what that means is they're not going to be able to get up and to walk around. So they may be at home a, a whole lot by themselves with a lot of time on their hands. If we really think that we're in a battle with somebody that wants to use every 
opportunity to get in. And there's one person that can guard them and keep them safe. Why wouldn't we pray? Or Devon and Shervanda, who just had a baby. For all of y'all that have kids, you know how much a newborn can take a toll on your marriage. And it's so hard when you're in it to pray for, for, uh, for yourself. This is the beauty of the church. that as God calls us to pray for all people, what takes place is we find that as sure as Satan himself has a squad, God has provided us with a squad and of folks that can go to God on our behalf and to pray for us in times that we're weak and don't think to pray for ourselves. And in that sense, you and I are upheld not just by our strength and our re resolve to stand, but, but we're upheld by the very fact that we have people that are praying for us when we don't pray. And then Paul goes on at the end and just says this, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Two things. The very first thing is this. Paul calls them to pray for him. And as we just kind of start our time as a church, you know, we're in our 12th week. One thing that I want to ask y'all and plead with you is that y'all would pray for your pastors. Sometimes being a pastor is the worst position to be in in a church, or it feels like it, because um, you're constantly aware of what goes on in the lives of so many. And you constantly get phone calls of, hey, I've got a question. Can you help me with this? Can you do this for me? I need your help. But you rarely and seldom just get, how can I pray for you? So we, as young pastors, are unashamedly asking you to please remember to pray for us and our families. We feel it on a daily that sometimes, I mean, we sit and talk and just feel like, man, I think we're in over our heads. It's clear to us daily that we're outmatched and we do not have the wisdom to do the things or to lead in the way that God has called us to play, to, to, to lead, and we covet your prayers. And then the last thing that Paul prays for is boldness. Right? It's so easy for us to be gripped by uh, rational fears. It's easy for those of us that have been knocked down time and time again to wake up each day and to feel like, man, I don't have what it takes. I'm fearful. I don't know if I can share this or if I have a platform to stand on. And so the thing that we pray for is strength and boldness. This is a guy that's in jail, not praying for freedom, but saying, nah, on my feet, I'm ready to share the gospel of peace. So Wherever I am, God has called me to take advantage of the place that I am. And Paul said that in jail. On your job, there's those of y'all that, that feel like work is jail. If work is jail to, to, to you, pray that God would give you boldness while you're in those chains to fearlessly 
Share with the people that we come across day in and day out that they don't have to work. They don't have to run or try to earn anything from God. They can sit and rest in what God has done for them. God has called them to stand up and to walk it out, to live in light of what he's done so that their lives uh, give a platform to their words. And lastly, Paul, God tells us to stand to know that we are in a war zone. We are actively being opposed. And so if we know that we're in a war zone, we know what we're up against, then, then we know how we need to clothe ourselves. It's a daily preparation that takes place. You don't just roll... Life depends on it, because it actually does. But the beauty is, is that we serve a God that conquered death and danger and heartache. And regardless of how many times we get knocked down, the truth is we are victorious because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, once again, um, we ask for your help. We need your help, Lord. Um, we know that we're outmatched. Help us not to underestimate um, what we're up against, Father. Uh, but I pray that as sure as we see that we're outmatched, that uh, we would lean on you. We would depend on you and we would seek um, to stand against the devil by remaining on our knees in prayer. Help us to discipline ourselves, to constantly rely on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.